0: Author Philip Yancey, he has a friend who works among the down and out in urban Chicago. Once a prostitute came seeking his help. She was in desperate straits. This woman was homeless and sick and addicted to drugs. She had no money to buy any food for herself and her daughter. In the course of the conversation, she dropped the bombshell. While crying profusely, she confessed to prostituting out her own little girl. Well, Yancey's friend, he couldn't barely stomach her perverse story. He was disgusted by it. And not really knowing how to reply, he asked her if she had ever been to a church for help. His answer still haunts him. This is what she said, or this is what he, he said in response. He said, I'll never forget the look of astonishment that crossed her face. She cried out, Church! Why would I ever go there? Well, Jesus, while on earth, the misfits, the bag ladies and the street people, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the scandalous of society flocked to see Jesus. Our Lord was known as a friend of sinners. Yet those same people don't always feel welcome in the churches that represent that same Jesus. And we ask why. Well, here's the reason. There is a monumental difference between religion and living a vital life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. You see too many churches and Christians alike. They major on religion, but they don't really know Jesus. Make no mistake about it. Christianity and churchianity are two different entities. This summer I visited two major cities, Jerusalem and Rome. And in each place, I asked the same question What's the principal business in this city? Both tour guides answered the same. They said, Religion. In both cities, people are passionate about holy sites and sacred rituals. They're proud of the emblems of their religion. They write their prayers down on pieces of paper and then slip them into the crevices of the wall. Or they bow before their mosque. Or they kiss the toe on the statue of St. Peter. You see, religion promises that being in a holy place or doing a holy thing will make you holy and therefore closer to God. Well, after the problems I saw in Jerusalem and Rome, it's safe to say that religion fails to deliver on its promise. Roy Gustafson, he writes this, "...religion is man's quest for God." The gospel is the Savior seeking lost men. Religion originates on earth. The gospel originated in heaven. Religion is man-made. The gospel is God's gift. Religion is the story of what a sinful man tries to do for a holy God. The gospel is the story of what a holy God has done for sinful men. He sums it up. Religion is good views. The gospel is good news. And too many folks fail to understand the difference. Religion consists of rites and rules and relics and recitations and regulations. Religion has a select few or a priestly caste, as well as their shrines and their sacred places. Often religion has a dress code and an admission fee. It sends its detractors to hell and its subscribers to heaven. Religion builds itself as a step-by-step to get you to heaven, whereas Jesus is able to bring heaven to you. It reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who started her lesson with a question. Okay, boys and girls, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die? One five-year-old, he was insulted by a question with such an obvious answer. Little Tyler, he raised his hand and he said, Well, of course I want to go to heaven. Why do you think I put a nickel in the offering box? Out of the mouth of babes. But this is the attitude of religion. How can I buy myself some fire insurance? What deeds should I do? What hoops do I need to jump through? What dues am I required to pay? What rigors can I put myself through to prove to God how deserving I am of His favor? How can I settle up with God for my sin so that I can get on with my life? You see, religion is about form and appearance and outward compliance and political fervor, but the sad testimony of religion is its inability to change man on the inside. Rather than fill us with love for God and for others, all too often religion just sanctions our hate. It may bow a knee to God or tip its hat to tradition, but time and time again, religion proves unable to transform the human heart. Here's why we don't attract the folks that Jesus attracted. We're too busy doing stuff to make ourselves look good to really be good. Religion creates a resume that inflates our pride and bolsters our self-righteousness. And worse... Our pet specifications end up a barrier to folks who might want to come to Jesus, but don't get the chance because they're so turned off by our religion. Author A.W. Tozer, he makes this observation, most men play at religion as they play at games. Religion itself being of all games, the one most universally played. You see, religious people pretend to be morally superior Then play games that promote their perceived superiority. And one group believes us. They see our badges of religion and they think that we're more than we are. And they get discouraged. How could I ever be as good as those guys if they only knew? The other group sees right through us. They're unimpressed. They see the chinks in our armor. They know that even a pious person is far from perfect. They're turned off by pretense and hypocrisy. You see, either way, religion doesn't attract anyone. It repels. Hell will be full of people who never considered Jesus because they were so disillusioned by religion. Now let me make a statement this morning that at first sound might be strange to your ears. But it's true. God is opposed to religion. That's right, the God of the Bible is against religion. For a time, religion was necessary. It was a stopgap measure. But it was never part of God's original design, and in the end, there'll be no place for it in eternity. Revelation 21 takes us to the end of the timeline, to that moment when time fades into eternity, when the physical universe is no more. 2 Peter 3 tells us that the elements will melt with fervent heat. A colossal meltdown occurs. The world with which we're so familiar will become a distant memory. And there God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. As well as a glorious city, it appears. Heaven today is that city. And John sees this new Jerusalem descending from God like a bride adorned for her wedding day. The last 19 verses of Revelation chapter 21 provide us a description of this eternal city. I encourage you to read the chapter. John stretches our imagination as far as it can be stretched. The glories of the celestial city are incomprehensible to even the most daring dreamer. But what's in this city is not the only important revelation. Perhaps more stunning is what's excluded from the New Jerusalem. For in verse 22, John notes a significant omission. He says, But I saw no temple in it. Now today, when you think of the skyline of Seattle, you think of the Space Needle. St. Louis is synonymous with the arch that crosses or by the Mississippi. Paris has the Eiffel Tower, San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge. Every picture of London, and you've seen them on the Olympics, includes Big Ben. The great city of Atlanta, it has the varsity. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, the temple built by Solomon and later Herod's temple dominated Jerusalem's skyline. And whenever we take a trip to Israel, we visit the Israeli Museum, where they have a model of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. It's enormous, about the size of a fast food restaurant. And you see the temple in proportion to the rest of the city. Clearly, the temple was the main attraction. The temple of Jerusalem dwarfed all its adjacent buildings. It towered over the city's landscape. You see, a generation after David conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites, Solomon constructed the temple. It was built at God's command, after divine specifications. It stood for 400 years as the nation's focal point. Three times a year, all Jewish males were commanded to go up to Jerusalem and worship at this temple. The temple was the one place on earth that God had promised to manifest His presence and reveal His glory. The temple was referred to in the Psalms as God's footstool. Thus, it was an unprecedented tragedy. When in 586 BC, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was an act of God's judgment on the sin of the people. The Babylonians, they burned the temple. And they transported the Jews to Babel where they spent 70 years in exile. And yet the very moment they returned to the land, their first desire was to rebuild that temple. The prophet Haggai even rebuked the Jews for rebuilding their own houses before they found time to rebuild the house of God. 500 years later, when Herod became king, he courted the favor of prestigious Jews by remodeling and expanding the temple. And this was the temple visited by Jesus. You recall our Lord's ominous prediction from the top of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Temple Mount. He said that because of the nation's rejection of their Messiah, not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. And that prediction came true. Forty years later, in 70 AD, the temple was razed to the ground by the Romans. But my point is this. A temple in Jerusalem has always been the Jewish priority. Even in Israel today, there is a move today to rebuild the temple. On our recent trip, we visited the Temple Institute, where a group of Jews are fabricating furniture and tools for a future temple. A current rabbinical leader in Israel, Naaman Kahan, he remarked, All Jewish history, as far as we're concerned, is one big parenthesis until the temple is returned. Life without the temple is not really living for the last 2000 years and for 50 generations the jews have prayed for the rebuilding of their temple and to me this long and storied saga of the temple makes it all the more strange that in eternity in the new jerusalem a temple is conspicuously missing how can something that played such a significant role in the city's past be absent in the Jerusalem of the future. Why is the temple just temporary? Realize, the temple in Jerusalem was synonymous with religion. It was the bastion of religious practice and passion. You could call it religion's greenhouse. It's hotbed. The Jewish temple was the epitome of religion. The temple was the site of the altar where the sacrifices were offered to God. Fowls were taken at the temple. The priest burned incense in the temple. Outside the temple, the Levites performed ceremonial washings. Ordinary Jews and Gentiles alike, they came to the temple precincts to pray. Tithes were placed on the giant collection boxes that sat in the temple's outer court. The temple was a beehive and a showcase for religious activity. But there was one problem. Though the temple was in close proximity to God and was permeated with the things of God, it never put men and women in actual touch with God. It never did. Human-initiated sacrifices and vows and outward washings and baptisms and the burning of incense and rope prayers and tithes never put folks in a right relationship with God. Religious activities, they taught lessons, and they illustrated truths, but by themselves they were never able to cleanse a person's sin and make a bad heart better. God saw religion as a means to an end, but He never intended for it to be an end in itself. Realize, for thousands of years, the temple doors stayed open for business, and yet a whole millennium of temple operation only produced sad spiritual results. The temple stressed and focused on the distance between God and man without doing anything to close the gap. The temple fostered a deception in the mind of man that we're better than we are. And the temple formed a distraction that impeded real worship. It eventually became a substitute for God. And here's what I want to talk about with the rest of my time. What's wrong with religion? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It focuses on distance, and it fosters deception, and it forms distraction. First, understand that the temple and the religion, it's so epitomized, focused on the distance between God and man without doing anything to end that separation. You see, the temple was divided into various courts. The inner sanctum was home to the presence of God. But it could be visited by only one person, the high priest, and then only one time of the year on the Day of Atonement. Well, the next area outside the inner sanctum was the holy place. But it was for only the priests. The third court was the court of Israel, which sort of doubled as the men's only club, sort of the Augusta National of ancient Israel. I mean, still, women and Gentiles were on the outside looking in. In fact, if the temple were the Georgia Dome, most of us would have been sitting in the nosebleeds. It's funny really, though the temple was abuzz with religious activity, no one in the precincts was really getting through to God. Individual sin kept everyone separated from God. The temple was a place to remember what God was like and plead for His mercy, but it didn't bring anyone in contact with God Himself. Today, Jews in Jerusalem, they pray at the Wailing Wall. These stones are the remnant of the retaining wall that used to surround their ancient temple. And Jews believe that prayers prayed there are more likely to be answered. I ran across this great photo. It's of an Orthodox Jew holding up a cell phone in front of the stone so his friend on the other end could offer a prayer. Technology and religion on a joint venture here. This is religion in a nutshell. Folks assume that religion will bring them closer to God. In reality, it simply emphasizes the separation that exists between them and God. You see, the temple was a place where people did a lot of God stuff. But they never got to know God personally. In a sense, they were around God, the things of God, the worship of God. But that's not how you know God. People today make the same assumption, sadly. They come to church, and they start doing a lot of God stuff, and acting religious, and hanging out with religious folks. But you don't come to God through osmosis. That's not how you know Him. Godliness isn't a germ you catch by proximity. Only Jesus can bridge the gap between us and God. You can know God, but it happens when you choose to follow Jesus. Religion illustrates our separation. It's Jesus alone that did the work to close the distance. He forgives our sin. He changes our heart. He connects us to God. Last year, the NBA had a lengthy labor dispute. The players couldn't agree to terms with the owners, and so the owners locked them out of their arenas and their facilities. The pro basketball players, they practiced on their own and they held a few exhibitions, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't real basketball. It was a lockout. Well, understand, the temple was the ultimate owner lockout. In the temple worship, it was obvious that God had barred man from his presence. God was waiting until we agreed to his terms and embraced his son Jesus. For centuries, people came to the temple to practice on their own, put on their own personal exhibitions, but it wasn't the real thing. It was a game, not God. You see, religion is an owner lockout. It's all about distance. And second, the temple failed because it fostered a deception in the mind of man. You see, in Old Testament times, after a while of going to the temple, people thought they were right with God just because they entered its doors. This was the phenomena that occurred in Jeremiah chapter 7. The people of Judah felt that they were immune from God's judgment because Jerusalem, their capital city, was home to God's temple. How could God ever judge us? We've got the temple. And yet the prophet Jeremiah warns them in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Amen your ways and your doings. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord Lord are these. He's saying, don't trust in temple activity or temple attendance. Religion won't spare you from God's judgment. God isn't looking for religious observance. He wants heartfelt repentance. You see, here's what happens to religious people. They develop a false sense of security. Because they support the work of God and hang out with the people of God, they assume that God must be pleased. It's like the guy who went down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. You know, his friend saw him boarding the bus with a Bible under his arm. He shouted, where are you going? His buddy answered, New Orleans, man. I hear the girls are plentiful, the booze are cheap, and the parties are wild. I'm heading to Mardi Gras. His pal replied, well, why do you have that Bible under your arm? The guy shouted back, well, if I'm having a good time, I plan to stay over on Sunday. And today there are scores of folks just as naive and just as deceived. They think that acting religious, toting a Bible, or attending church, or paying a tithe is going to make them right with God. You see, it's no surprise that the Pharisees hung out in the temple. No surprise. The Pharisees were pompous hypocrites. They were proud of their religious zeal. They worked hard at the particulars of religion to prove their own righteousness. But in Matthew 23, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look pure and spiritual on the outside, but inside you're dead and you're crooked and you're corrupt. You see, religion can be a facade. Just a hook where a proud person can hang up his pride and his self-righteousness and show it off to others. As William James once put it, religion is a monumental chapter in the history of human egotism. Hey, have you ever seen the eye black under a baseball player's eyes? You ever seen that? Eye black is a mixture of crushed charcoal and paraffin and beeswax and petroleum. Supposedly, it reduces the glare that bounces off a player's cheeks. But recently, an ophthalmologist at John Hopkins School of Medicine was asked, Does it do anything? The doctor answered, Probably not. When I read that article, I was so disappointed. I was crushed. You mean for years I put tar under my eyes and for no good reason? It did me no good? One of my boyhood heroes was Boog Powell of the Baltimore Orioles. Boog wore eye black under his eyes every game for 17 years. Boog summed up why he used it. I don't remember it ever doing any good, but you looked cool. Hey, religion and I, black serve the same purpose. Neither does anything, except it makes you look cool. You see, the temple and its religion, religion in general, fosters a deception. You end up looking more spiritual than you really are. That's a danger. And then the third danger, the temple failed because it formed a distraction that got in the way of real worship. You see, over time, the temple actually became a substitute for God. In the Old Testament, Jews became more devoted to the temple than to God himself. Over time, the form replaced what it represented. The symbol distracted from the reality. This is what Jesus saw up close and personal when he went into the temple. You know, in reality, all of those sacrifices... Over all of those years, it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Messiah's work on the cross. The temple vows and tithes and prayers and washing, all in their own way, pointed to Jesus. But when Jesus came and walked into that temple, the Jews were so enthralled with the symbols that they rejected the Savior. You remember, at His trial, they even accused Jesus of speaking against their temple. It was one of the reasons they gave for crucifying Him. Blaise Pascal once said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Never forget it was the religious crowd, not the Romans, that cried for Jesus to be crucified. When Leonardo da Vinci finished painting The Last Supper, he showed his masterpiece to a friend. And the man noticed and remarked about the the job that Leonardo had done with the chalice in Jesus' hand. He said, man, this is exquisite immediately, the artist, he grabbed his paintbrush and he blotted out the chalice. Leonardo later explained, nothing should distract from the Lord. You see, this is what happens in religion. The things of God become a distraction to God himself. Cleveland is the home of some very loyal football fans. Today, they support the new Cleveland Browns. But prior to the new Browns, every Sunday for 46 years, the city threw tailgate parties and headed to the stadium to cheer on the old Browns. That is, until 1996 when Browns owner, Art Modell, not a popular guy in Cleveland, moved the team to Baltimore and renamed it the Ravens. But a strange phenomenon occurred the first Sunday in September of 1996 after the move. Even though there was no longer a Cleveland team, fans still showed up at the stadium wearing Browns jerseys and waving Browns pennants. After tailgating that Sunday, they still went into the stadium to cheer and holler for their absentee Browns. And this is the perfect illustration of religion. Religion talks about God and gets dressed up for God and cheers for God and wears God clothes and does God stuff. But it's all a substitute for experiencing God Himself. People play at the game and they miss out on God. Religion ends up a deadly distraction. In a sense, Karl Marx was right with his infamous statement, religion is the opium of the masses. Religion does keep men in a stupor. It keeps them hung over. It deadens their senses to the need for a real, living, vital, growing relationship with God. And this, my friend, is why there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. The temple speaks of religion. And there'll be none in eternity. Religion is replaced by God Himself. Read the rest of Revelation 21 verse 22. John also records what's included in the city. He said, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In the New Jerusalem, the symbols will vanish in the wake of the substance. The forms will flee in the face of reality. There'll be no need for a temple when we're living in the presence of the Lord and the Lamb. In Revelation 21, the end of religion has come. The temple is replaced with a true relationship with God. When the Lord and the Lamb are the temple, there'll be no distance between man and God. Both will live together and forever in perfect harmony. Deceptions won't develop. When the Lord is the temple, truth and trust will reign in men's hearts. And there'll be nothing to distract us. We'll all see Jesus face to face. What's written in Revelation 22 verse 4 is what makes heaven so heavenly. John tells us, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead. We'll see Jesus for ourselves and he'll fill up our thoughts. This is why temples are unnecessary and temporary. Religion, this is why religion is a lame duck. It's the Lord and the Lamb that will capture our heart and lead us in the ways of God forever. This one verse, Revelation 21 verse 22, provides us a major detail of the future celestial city. It has no temple. And yet this fact has a profound influence on my priorities today. For as a believer in Jesus, why am I trying to be all religious when there'll be no religion in heaven? I don't have to worry about dotting every religious I and crossing every legalistic T. I've been set free. Adhering to religious rules and observing religious rituals shouldn't be my priority. I need to be fixated on one thing. That's following the Lord and the Lamb. God wants me trusting in and walking with and relying on the Lord Jesus. Here's the Christian's duty in a nutshell to sum it all up. God Almighty wants you and I to be madly in love with Jesus. Forget about religion and just fall in love with Jesus. As Martin Luther put it, faith is under the left nipple. It's in your heart. God wants our passions aflame and on fire with love for the living Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus bore our sin. He secured for us a permanent pardon. There's no need to tiptoe through the temple. You can move past temple stuff and religious stuff, and you can go straight into God's presence. You can live in the inner sanctum where God dwells, not in the outer courts of religion. For the follower of Jesus, the end of religion has already come. And a living, loving, liberating relationship with the Lord and the Lamb has begun. And as Christians, our job is not to push religion. It's not to mandate to society a list of laws and liturgies. God hasn't called us to invite folks to the temple of religion. He doesn't want us to foster the notion that religion somehow gives you an advantage with God. For it doesn't. The only thing that's going to matter in heaven is the Lord and the Lamb. That's why our only task today is to lift up Jesus. Our job is to invite irreligious sinners, just as they are, and right where they're at, to come to Jesus. That's our job. This is why we don't want Calvary Chapel to come across as a religious place. Have you noticed we don't follow a religious calendar? Or have any overtly religious traditions? We're light on pomp and circumstance around here. We don't light candles or burn incense. The pastor doesn't even wear religious vestments. Unless you count the holy jeans he wears from time to time. (laughs) This is why there are no icons in the hallways or relics at the altar or symbols on the walls. You see, we don't want people to have to jump over a bunch of religious stuff to get to the God who loved them enough to die in their place. We just want to be an environment where folks can walk in and meet firsthand with the Lord and with the Lamb. I mean, even when we erected our building, we didn't want it to look churchy or religious. I was happy when the neighbors thought a bowling alley was moving in. <laughs> the absence of a steeple and stained glass windows is deliberate. I mean, here's the deal if there won't be a temple in the New Jerusalem, why would we build one now? I remember in our childhood church, we felt as if we needed to whisper in the sanctuary. It was as if the Almighty was behind the curtain and nowhere else. We assumed that God lived only in stained glass houses. A couple of weeks ago, I officiated a wedding at another church. It was a very formal and liturgical setting. Stained glass, wooden beams, it was big altar, whole deal. And all the old religious feelings came flooding back. In that environment, suddenly, there were two sets of rules. There was a religious protocol that applied to God's house. And then there were the regular rules for everywhere else. And you see, this is what religion does. It creates in our hearts this artificial separation That religious people and places and activities are made to appear more righteous to God while secular places and people and activities seem inconsequential to God. But neither is true. Religion doesn't give you an advantage. And secular is no less important. All that matters now is the Lord and the Lamb. And all of life should be brought under His authority and live to His praise. Realize, I don't want to be a church that's churchy or religious. As a matter of fact, I am against religion. Religion highlights the distance between man and God. It deceives us into thinking we're more than we are, and it distracts us from true worship. I mentioned to you earlier, all cities, they have famous landmarks. Rome has the famous Colosseum, and Moscow has Red Square, and Marietta has the big chicken. (laughs) Well, Jerusalem of old was towered over by the temple. But the future city that we're all longing to see, the new Jerusalem, its skyline is going to be dominated by the Lord and the Lamb. Jesus will be the bright light of all eternity. And this is why I'm praying that today, Jesus will fill up every skyline, every headline, every byline of my life, and your life as well. I pray He'll dwarf all that goes on in this church. Guys, it is not about religion. It's not about jumping through hoops and doing backflips for God. It's about Jesus, yielding your life to Him, embracing His life for you. All that God has for us, He has wrapped up in Christ. May religion come to an end in your life. And may God reveal Jesus in all of His grace and in all of His glory.